We are kicking off a brand new series today, a brand new series called I Am, and it's going to be preparing us for Easter that is coming in just a a few weeks. And I want to begin today's message with kind of a a riddle. Uh, I want to show you some pictures. Uh, What do the eight people up on the screen have in common? And I'll tell you who they are if you don't recognize them. On the top left, this is uh, Lee Iacocca. Uh, you may know, very famous businessman. He's the guy that they helped develop the Mustang. Some of you are eternally grateful for that. He's also the guy that turned around uh, Chrysler Corporation in the 80s. Next to him is Frank Robinson, one of my favorite all-time baseball players, Hall of Famer, native of Oakland. I don't know if you know that, a Bay Area guy. He's uh, especially notable also as the first African-American manager in Major League Baseball history. And then next to him is Doris Day. Uh, She was one of the the biggest stars in Hollywood in the middle of the 20th century, that last century. And then on the top right, that's uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, Supreme Court Justice for 35 years, one of the longest serving justices in the entire history of our nation. Go back to the bottom left and maybe recognize Diane Carroll, a groundbreaking actress, singer, model. And then uh, next to her, and this is going to take some of you back, uh, some of you back I know right now, Eddie Money, right? Eddie Money, uh, rocker, singer, two tickets to, there we go. Um, And uh, next to him, that's Elijah Cummings, a prominent uh, member of the House of Representatives representing uh, Baltimore and the surrounding area, civil rights activist. And then... Bottom right corner, Luke Perry, Beverly Hills, 90210, there we go, I hear that, I hear that over there, teen idol, um, still the idol for some of you I can hear, and uh, so here's the question, you see these eight people, what do these eight people have in common? It should be obvious, right, can you see it? Well, if you need some help, I'll, I'll just answer the riddle for you. One year ago, on January 1st, 2019, all eight of these people were very much alive. But by January 1st of this year, 2020, uh, they had all died. They are no longer with us. We now speak of them in the past tense. And this highlights the reality that there is only one being in the entire universe that is always in the present tense. And that's not us. Because one day, people will speak of us in the past tense. There's only one person in the universe who's always in the present tense, who always is, and that is God. God, Almighty God. One day, over 3,000 years ago, God was speaking to Moses out of a burning bush, and Moses asked God, well, who are you? What is your name? And this is what we read in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. Well, what does this name I am tell us about God? Theologians tell us that I am distinguishes God as the only non-contingent being in the entire universe. And this just means that God is the only being who is not dependent on some other source or some other power or some other kind of life for his existence. God is not contingent on anyone or anything else. By contrast, we are all contingent. Say, I am contingent. I am contingent. We're all contingent. We depend 
on someone outside of us for our existence, but not God. God is the source of everything else. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, this will help us to understand a conversation that took place between Jesus and a crowd of people. It's recorded for us in John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to these people one day, and he's teaching them about their ancient ancestor Abraham. And he makes it sound as he teaches them as if he knew Abraham personally, even though Abraham had lived 2,000 years earlier. And some of the people in the crowd kind of like stuck their hands up and said, uh, wait a minute, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old, and you're telling us that you knew Abraham? And Jesus responds this way in John 8, 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Now that crowd that day was stunned because Jesus was not only claiming to be really, really old, but they knew that he was claiming to be the non-contingent, eternally existing God of everything, God of the universe, the great I am, the great I am. Well, that's what we're launching into today, this seven-part series called I Am Jesus in His Own Words. And maybe you know this, but maybe you don't. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven amazing, even outrageous claims about himself, about his identity. And, and we're going to be studying those claims because we want to know Jesus. Amen? That's why we're here. I hope you understand. We want to know Jesus. We want to become more like Jesus. And this series is going to take us through Easter and help us know Jesus better, and as it helps us know Jesus better, it's also going to help us be ready to celebrate Easter in a way that honors Christ, in a way that just truly brings joy into our hearts. See, in John's gospel, Jesus repeatedly uses this title, I am, to speak of himself, and each time he does, he gives it a further definition by adding something after it. So turn to your Bible in John 6, if you're not already there, and we're going to look at the first I am statement. This statement is, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And we find this first statement in John 6, 35. John 6, 35. I want you, if you would, to join me, and we're going to read this verse out loud together, okay? Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So what does this title, Bread of Life, tell us about Jesus? There are three truths I, I want to kind of lift up for you to see and think about. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is first telling us this. Only Jesus fully satisfies our souls. Only Jesus fully satisfies our souls. Now, if your Bible is open to John 6, we just read verse 35, but I want you to kind of look up the page, or maybe you've got to turn a page back to get to verse 1 of that chapter. And there is a heading over verse 1 that helps us see the context for the statement Jesus makes, I am the bread of life. What, what, what happened right before Jesus made this statement? What, what big miracle took place? Go ahead and call it out if you know. Do you see it? The feeding of the 5,000. See, Jesus one day took one boy's lunch... And he fed an incredible crowd of people with one lunch. One boy evidently packed a lunch 
And we're told it was two small fish, probably like sardines, probably a fish about this size, five loaves of bread. Now, don't think a loaf of bread like we say loaf. This is more like what we call a dinner roll. That was their loaf of bread. And Jesus took this lunch intended for one person, and he broke the bread, and he broke it and broke it and broke it and broke it. He, he distributed the fish, and he kept distributing it, and it fed 5,000 hungry men. In addition to women and children, scholars say maybe as many as 20,000 people were there. There were thousands and thousands of people fed by one boy's lunch. So bread is the topic of this miracle. In fact, if you read the story, you'll see the word bread pop up five times. Jesus just multiplies bread. It's all about bread. There was so much bread. There's like more bread than you'd ever see even at Panera. I don't know. You know, just bread. And next day, the people go looking for Jesus. Uh, Jesus evidently leaves after this, we're told, and the people go looking for him. They find him in this little village called Capernaum, which is around the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a few miles from where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 happened. And we pick this story up in verses 25 through 27. This is what John writes. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So Jesus refers back to the miracle he did the, the day before, the multiplication of the bread, and he calls it a sign. Did you notice that word in the middle of verse 26? If you're marking your Bible, you, you might want to circle it or underline it, this word signs. It's another very important word in John's gospel. Not only are there seven I am statements in John's gospel, but John records seven major signs that Jesus did. Major miracles that Jesus performed to authenticate that he was indeed the Messiah. Why does he call them signs? Well, what does a sign do? And, and you know this, a sign points the way to something else, right? A sign doesn't point to itself. It always points to something else. For example, if you were driving down to SoCal and taking the kids to Disneyland, and you, you were driving down the interstate, and on the way you saw a sign that said Disneyland 30 miles away, you guys would not pull over to the side of the road and say, hey, kids, get out of the car, we're here right? I mean, you'd have some angry kids real quickly, because the sign is not Disneyland, is it? The sign is not the major attraction. The sign points to the major attraction. And Jesus' multiplication of bread was not about the bread. The bread was a sign. What did the bread point to? It pointed to Jesus. Jesus was the main attraction, now, here's the thing. Unfortunately, and you must not miss this, the crowd was more interested in bread for the sake of bread. Look at those verses again, verses 25 to 27. That's why Jesus, he rebukes them in verse 26. He says, the only reason you're looking for me is because you ate the loaves and had your fill. 
Now, Jesus is not opposed to feeding people. Jesus cared about people having food. He wanted them to be fed. Go back and read the story. It was Jesus who noted they were hungry. It was Jesus who said to his disciples, let's feed them. And he took care of their need for food. But Jesus knew these people had an even deeper need. He knew that they needed spiritual food. That they had an innate hunger for God. And you know that is true for every one of us today. God has designed you for an intimate relationship with himself. And here's the truth, the reality. You crave that relationship whether you realize it or not. See, nothing short of God will ever satisfy your soul's hunger. Nothing short of God will ever fill you up. Not even bread. Not even that freshly baked bread they bring out at the fancy restaurant. It's hot. And they slice it right there for you. And they've got olive oil, really good olive oil to dip it in. Not even that kind of bread will satisfy your soul's hunger. And neither will sex. And neither will your job. Neither will a different woman or a different man. Neither will a lower golf score or a vacation to the Bahamas or a new baby or 40% off at Nordstrom's. (laughs) Not anything. Nothing else. Nothing else. Do Do you know what Jesus calls this stuff that we are constantly looking to for soul satisfaction? And we all do it. Go back to verse 27 again. He says, do not work for what? Food that spoils. Food that spoils. Because that kind of food is here today and it's gone tomorrow. In in other words, all that other stuff we're constantly trying to feed ourselves, it never provides us with lasting satisfaction. I mean, it may taste good going down, but it doesn't relieve our deepest hungers. In fact, and this is a dangerous thing, it often masks our soul hunger for God. And that's not a good thing. It's not good to have your true hunger masked, to not recognize that you do have a soul hunger that needs to be satisfied. A week and a half ago, February 26th, some of you may have noticed this was Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday kicks off the the season of Lent, a big date in the Christian calendar. This is a a, a, a season in the Christian calendar that Christians have been celebrating for centuries. Lent leads up to Holy Week, uh, Good Friday and Easter. And, and it's customary that during the season of Lent, one of the practices or one of the habits uh, that Christ followers have engaged in over the centuries is called fasting. Fasting. What is fasting? Well, fasting just means you voluntarily give something up for a period of time. And often, most obviously, it's food of some sort. Now, why would Christ followers do that? Well, there's a couple reasons that that kind of pop right up. One of them is it it makes time for prayer. Uh, Most people say, "I, I wish I prayed more. A lot of people say, I just don't have the time. And so sometimes people fast. They skip a meal or maybe they skip a day of meals and maybe they do it during Lent or maybe during any time of the year. And they do it specifically in order to have more time praying, more time with God. But there's another thing, something else that fasting does for Christ followers. And it's this. It helps curb our appetite 
for things in our lives that we use to satisfy our hunger for God. For things that get in the way of God. For things that we're giving ourselves too much to. Things that are distracting us from a hunger for God. In other words, food that spoils. Food that spoils. Now, sometimes this is literally food. Has anybody else noticed how wrapped around the axle we all are in food in our culture today? I mean, honestly, if you're aware of this, maybe you're not, but if you were to go back in history 20 or 30 years, and if you were to go back farther, 50 years, people in America would be so befuddled by our obsession with food. We not only like to eat food, people have always liked to do that, we like to watch other people eat food. We watch whole shows on people making food, right? How many of you watch shows on food? Come on, you're in church, it's time to be honest. (laughs) I do too. We We just love food. We're always going out to eat. We're always trying to try new kinds of food. We love food. Have you ever stopped to think how interesting it is that in a culture that increasingly is pushing away the knowledge of God, interest in God, other things are rising up like food this is part of what's going on here part of what is is going on here and so sometimes we are so wrapped up with food eating too much food spending too much time thinking about eating maybe we need to cut back on food and as we do that we are saying by our fasting lord sometimes my pursuit of food edges out my pursuit of you and i want to hunger more for you god i i want to to know you more. I have a desire to have more of you in my life. So I am fasting from food, God. You only will ultimately satisfy my soul hunger. That hunger I am trying to fill with food. Now, some Christ followers also fast from other things that are over the top in their lives, things that are eclipsing their hunger for God. That's a good question to ask yourself. What is over the top in my life? You should ask yourself that question at least periodically. What's over the top in my life? Maybe it's watching sports. You watch hours and hours of sports every week, and yet, ironically, maybe you also have thought to yourself or you've told other people, I just never have time to read the Bible and pray like I really want to. I I don't really have time to get involved in a life group. I, I don't have time to serve in a ministry. My schedule is so full, and yet you watch hours and hours of sports. So maybe for you, fasting would involve cutting back watching sports or even stopping for a season of time to make time for your soul hunger to be satisfied. Some of you guys right now are saying, Pastor Mike, I can't believe you're bringing this up right before March Madness starts. This is is not a good time. (laughs) Well, I'm bringing it up because I want there to be more God madness in your life because I want you to know God more. And I think you want it too. I think you know that this is where real joy, real excitement comes from when you're connecting with God. Maybe it's not that. Maybe for some of you it means cutting back on something else that allows you more time to focus on God. Maybe like shopping. Maybe shopping's over the top in your life. That's how 
you try to satisfy your soul hunger. Maybe for you it's video gaming. Maybe for you it's like working out. Maybe it's interior decorating. Maybe it's playing golf. Or maybe it's binge watching Netflix. Maybe it's your cell phone. Maybe your screen time crowds out God time. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So here's the question, and it gets applied in different ways for different ones of us. In what area of your life could you benefit from some fasting? In fact, I would encourage you, if you want to take this seriously, write that question down. In what area of my life could I benefit from some fasting? Are you willing to even consider that? Some of you aren't. I'm just being real honest with you, okay? I I don't know who you are, but I know some of you don't even want to think about it. You're not willing to change your life. You're not willing to consider, stop doing something. And that's a sign that tells you those things you're not willing to consider stopping doing, they are over the top in your life. Those are the very things you most need to deal with in your life. Anybody want to say amen to that? (laughs) See, where do you need... To change your focus so that you can know God more. So you can experience the soul satisfaction that he wants to give you through Jesus. You see, Jesus, who's the bread of life, he wants us to hunger for him because he knows that everything else that we use to satisfy our souls is food that spoils. It never lasts. It leaves us empty. You know, uh, the food that spoils is kind of like junk food. Junk food. Again, true confession time. God is watching. How many of you like junk food of some kind, okay? You're not having to confess that you eat it. I know some of you are too good and too holy to eat junk food, but you like it. You would admit that you like it. You know, junk food's kind of an interesting thing. I, I, I will confess to you, I love gummy bears. I know I'm way too old to, to like gummy bears, but does anybody love gummy bears? Yes, I see those hands. I see those hands. And who, who out here loves a late-night bowl of cold cereal? Isn't that like the best? Yes, yes. You know, we just love junk food. Um, I, I wonder how many of you have ever opened a bag of Flaming Hot Cheetos, and like 15 minutes later you ask yourself, where did they all go? <laughs> you didn't even know. How did this happen? You know, I mean, I've never done that, but I know people who have. I'm just asking for a friend. Like, you know, we love junk food. And junk food has, as you probably know, unusually high amounts of sugars and salts and, and saturated fats. And what happens when we consume junk food is it just fills us up. Our stomachs get full for a moment, for a short time. But we also know that junk food is bad for us, right? Listen to what science tells us junk food does to us. Junk food is directly related to obesity, depression, digestive issues, heart disease, strokes, diabetes, cancer, and early death. Who wants to have Flaming Hot Cheetos for lunch now? Anybody see that documentary a few years ago, Supersize Me? Remember that one? Uh, if you didn't see it, there was this guy named Morgan Sturlock, a Spurlock, who, who ate nothing but McDonald's for 30 days. Breakfast, lunch and dinners. McDonald's, McDonald's, McDonald's for 30, 30 days. And after 30 days, he had gained 24 pounds. 
lifetime. You think about that. His cholesterol skyrocketed. He had mood swings, sexual dysfunction, fat accumulation in his liver. After he finished doing this experiment, he said later it took him 14 months to lose all of the weight that he had gained in 30 days. Now, we all know that junk food is bad for us, and we know why. Like in layman's terms, junk food is bad for us because it does not provide the basic nutrition our bodies need to perform in the way God created us to perform. You say, well, okay, I, I know that, Pastor Mike. What's the point? The point is this. Our souls experience the same effect. When we feed on things that don't last as a means of satisfying our soul's hunger, it kills our hunger for true nourishment, for true life. And without God, we starve spiritually. It's God we need to satisfy your souls. And listen to me, please, right now. Some of the reason, one of the reasons for many of you that you are not experienced relationship with God, fellowship with God, true nourishment from God is that you are consuming spiritual junk food. You're filling yourself up with that other stuff. It's food that spoils. It will never last. It won't satisfy you. And you're missing out on the one thing that will satisfy the hunger in your soul. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That's why he came. He came to bring us soul satisfaction. Here's the second thing that Jesus means when he says, I am the bread of life. He is telling us only Jesus gives us the true life we long for. Look at verses 30 and 31. So they ask him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now a little bit of background here. Jesus has done this miracle, now he's explaining it. And part of the context is historians tell us the Jewish people of the first century were looking for a promised Messiah, a promised Savior, and they believed that this Messiah would authenticate himself by performing the same kind of miracles Moses did, by replicating, among other things, Moses' miracle of providing manna, providing food. So the Savior, they, they thought, was going to show up and and do something like Moses did. You remember the story of manna? This takes place around 1400 B.C. God has delivered uh, the Israelite people through Moses' leadership from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He marches them toward the promised land. They get sidetracked along the way. And for 40 years, they end up wandering in the wilderness. During this 40 years, their time in the wilderness, the only thing that keeps them alive is God sustaining them with manna from heaven that they find on the ground each morning. And so this crowd is thinking, the Messiah is supposed to do a miracle like this. And Jesus, well, he's just performed a miracle. He's multiplied a, a boy's lunch yesterday with this bread. Is this the Moses-like Messiah we're hoping for? I think for many of them, the minute they they thought of that, they also had thoughts, well, you know, when you compare the two events, Moses' manna was so much better. And it's easy to see why they thought that. For starters, Moses provided manna for 40 years every day. Jesus just did it one day. Moses' manna, it fed an entire nation for 40 years, 2 million people. Jesus' manna, 5,000 men plus women and children. I mean, that's pretty impressive, but not 2 million 
Moses' manna fell from heaven. Jesus' manna got passed around in dirty baskets. Moses' manna, it was called the food of angels. But Jesus' bread, well, that was a little boy's lunch. That's all that was. And so they're thinking to themselves, Jesus, if you're, you're trying to prove that you're the Messiah here, you're going to have to impress us a little bit more. So I want you to notice Jesus' response. Look in verses 32 and 33. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. So he, he's telling them that this manna that you, you credit Moses with, it wasn't really from Moses, it came from God. And Jesus says, in the same way, God is now sending you true bread. And he's referring to himself. Jesus is saying, just like manna came from God, I have come from God for you. So how is Jesus better than the previous manna? Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, he calls this true bread the bread of God. Moses' bread, bread of angels. That's impressive. But Jesus says, this bread, it's God's bread. The bread of God. I'm the bread of God. Now, we wouldn't re recognize this, but those people did. Jesus, in saying that phrase, is using a technical term that his Jewish audience would have readily understood. The bread of God, in their culture, referred to the 12 uh, loaves freshly baked every day that got laid out on a solid gold table just outside the Holy of Holies as part of their worship. Twelve loaves, one for each tribe of Israel. And these loaves, they symbolize the presence of God. Sometimes uh, this bread was referred to as the bread of the presence. Have you ever read that? So who is Jesus claiming to be? Well, he's claiming to be the very presence of God among us. So, to have Jesus in our lives, not just to have a manna meal for the day, it's to have God with us. Jesus continues describing this bread, and he concludes by declaring that this true bread, this bread of God, this is the bread that gives life to the world. And this little phrase contains two wonderful thoughts I want to point out to you. First of all, notice that that phrase, gives life. A quick grammar lesson here. You've heard me say this before. Uh, this is a present tense in the Greek text. And in Greek, uh, present tense means sig it signifies continuous, ongoing action. And so when he says this true bread gives life, he is saying it gives life day after day after day. He's saying it is ongoing life. He's saying it is eternal life. Moses' bread, you see, sustained life for that particular day but that was it the manna didn't sustain for next week next month next year just one day but the true bread sustains life forever it's life giving bread and then second this true bread gives life to who notice it says to the world moses manna by contrast fed one group of people for one season of time but jesus jesus his bread feeds the whole world. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you live, whenever you live, for all of history, this offer of bread is for you. 
Jesus offers you life-giving bread. You, you want eternal life? Eternal life is to be found only in Jesus. Do you have Jesus? I am the bread of life is telling you Jesus is offering himself to you, for you. A couple of weeks ago, um, I, I drove up one day to the Sacramento Valley National Cemetery for Veterans. It's in Dixon. It's where my, my dad is buried. And you probably have, remember my dad has been gone uh, for a little over a year now. And it was just one of those days um, I just wanted to go there. I wanted to be there. And you know, whenever we lose someone to death, and we've all had this experience, it, it saddens us. But at the same time, if that person knows Jesus, we have hope. And I know that my dad knew Jesus, and so I know that my dad has taken in true bread. I know that my dad has true life. I know that he has this life that he will be sustained with for eternity. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know how people face death, either personally or, or for others that they love, without Jesus, without the hope he provides, without the promise of life, the assurance of life that he gives. Do you have that assurance? Do you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life? Maybe your response is, well, yeah, I think so. And what is your assurance based on? Is it based on truth? Or is it based on a wish? Is it based on confidence that you have Jesus? In other words, is Jesus, do you know, is he the source of your life? See, that's what Jesus is saying. He's come to give us satisfaction. He's come to give us life. Maybe you're asking about this point, well, how does a person eat this bread? And it's kind of a strange question, but if you stop to think about it, if it's bread that we're talking about, the bread won't do you any good if you don't eat it, right? If you don't know how to take it in. And that gives us the third truth that Jesus is telling us in this saying, and it's this, we only know Jesus when we feed on him in faith. Feed on him in faith. I, I want to read you a passage that honestly has confused people for 2,000 years, including the people who first heard it, the original hearers. We, we pick it up in verse 48. And Jesus in verse 48 repeats his claim. He says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. And by the way, if you're marking your Bible, uh, anytime you see something about eating, you should underline, circle that. It's there over and over. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, <clears throat> I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, if you read this whole chapter, it's really obvious that the theme of this teaching, especially at the close of Jesus' teaching, 
is eating Jesus' flesh. What's not so obvious is, what in the world does this mean? I mean, have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever read this and thought, this is really confusing, I don't get it. Well, some people read this and assume that Jesus is referring to the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate next week. Uh, the bread and the cup that symbolize Christ's body and, and his blood. Think about it. Why do we do that? Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, we're commemorating what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Our sins have separated us from a holy God. And, you know, when you disconnect your life from the source of life, when the power that gives life, when you disconnect from God, he is the giver and source of life, then one thing will happen. You die. And our sins have separated us. We disconnect from God, we experience spiritual death, and that leads to physical death, and eventually that leads to eternal death. And God sent his son Jesus to take the death we deserve to die, and that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. That's what we remember when we're taking the Lord's Supper. And so is Jesus describing that in John 6? Is, is eating Jesus' flesh what we do when we take the Lord's Supper? And the answer, I think, is no. No. For one thing... The Lord's Supper is a reenactment of the Last Supper, uh, just hours before Jesus' death on the cross. But this passage here in John 6 happened at least a year earlier. It's highly unlikely that Jesus was already speaking about that. And then second, the Lord's Supper is always pictured in the Bible as a celebration for believers. But in John 6, Jesus is addressing a crowd mostly of spiritual seekers. They're not believers they're not his followers so why would jesus be explaining the lord's supper to non-believers you say okay well what is it about then jesus actually gives the meaning of eating his flesh several times in john 6 and, and here it is he's referring to taking jesus into our lives by faith taking him into our hearts believing in him with all of our our being Go back to verses 34 and 35, this original I am statement. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Who, he who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So do you see it? Come to Jesus, believe in Jesus. That's where you find life. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then look at verse 47. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. So how do we get this new life <coughs> that Jesus offers? This life that extends into eternity. We believe. We believe in him. Now, you, you may think that sounds really simple and straightforward, so why doesn't Jesus just say that? Why does Jesus keep saying, eat my flesh, eat my flesh? I mean, doesn't Jesus know that this metaphor is going to turn people off? Doesn't Jesus see it's kind of gross? Doesn't Jesus know that people aren't going to accept that? In fact, that's exactly what happens. You get to the end of the story, and Jesus finishes his teaching, and most of the people in the crowd that were listening to him say, this is weird. We're out of here. That's exactly what happens. They leave. They walk away from Jesus. So the question is, did Jesus really maybe need a better speechwriter? <laughs> well, two reasons I think Jesus 
uses this metaphor, eat my flesh, drink my blood, instead of just saying, believe in me. And I want to close with these two reasons. First, by saying, eat my flesh, Jesus is communicating to us, I want you to ingest me fully into your life. See, when you eat, you take something that's outside of you and you bring it into your body, right? You you make it part of who you are. You digest it. Jesus is saying, I want you to take me in. And it is, when you stop to think about it, a much deeper, much more profound way to say this than to just say, believe. And I think that's even more important in our culture today because there are a lot of people who say they believe in Jesus, but it doesn't change their lives. You know anybody like that? Maybe that's you. You believe some facts. You've accepted some truths, some principles. You say yes, but... It never has changed your life. You know, the Bible says that even Satan believes in Jesus that way. It's just head knowledge. It's just agreeing with some facts. Jesus is saying here, I mean so much more. And I want you to take me into your life fully. I want you to surrender yourself completely to me. I want to be Lord, King of your life. And so I have to ask you today, have you ever eaten Jesus in that way? And if you're here and... You're just kind of casually saying, oh, yeah, I I believe in Jesus. Is that like a one-and-done deal for you? Do you think that's true for you because you prayed a prayer one time, because you raised your hand one time, you signed a piece of paper one time? Or or is it a, a living reality in your life each day? Second reason I think Jesus uses this phrase, eat my flesh, is because he wants us to know this. He's saying to us, I want you to savor me like delicious food. I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and here's the best I could come up with. I was trying to think of like a, a gourmet, all-you-can-eat place, kind of like a mashup of Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and Golden Corral. <laughs> Heavy on the Ruth Chris, pretty light on the Golden Corral, all right? I was just trying to think, how, you know, where you could go to a place and it was just the best food imaginable, but there were lots and lots and lots and lots of options and choices And that's kind of what we're talking about here. Always something new to savor. Always something new to learn about Jesus. Always something so very sweet and delicious to experience about the beauty of Jesus. Is Jesus beautiful to you? Is he beautiful to you? Is he always some new discovery to be made? And I am telling you, if you have a true relationship with Jesus, you will experience this. You will find that you can feed and you can feast on Jesus. I hope that's what you're experiencing in your life. I hope that you have not settled for believing. Jesus comes and says, not only to those people 2,000 years ago, but to you, to me today, I am the bread of life. He is the only way you'll ever be satisfied. He is the only way you'll ever know true life. And you'll, ever, you'll never experience those things until you begin to feed in faith on him.